All right, if you've got your Bible, open to the book of John, chapter 12. to excuse my drink. The only residual thing I've got from COVID right now is this annoying little like tickle in my throat that just makes me cough. So I'll apologize once and we'll roll on. That'll, that'll be it. John chapter 12. Uh, we are at a, a turning point in the book of John. If you've been studying along with us, uh, kind of keeping up with where, where we are, uh, John chapter 12 is a turning point. <clears throat> it's a pivotal chapter where we see the shift from what John has been doing and the case he has been making into this, like, this really distinct memory that John has of a really important night. So in order for us to, to see the pivot, uh, clearly we're going to need to look back a little bit. Um, so let's do that for a second. Um, <coughs> so John, if you remember with me, uh, John is writing this gospel, this account of the life of Jesus. He's writing this as an old man. He's looking back after a lifetime full of seasoning and experiences. And you think about John uh, as an old man that all of his closest friends that we have recorded for us is the, the boys that he runs with, Jesus, even. All of the people that were the most important to him have died. And he's at... Uh, late in life, probably, maybe in his 80s, looking back and he writes this story. It reminds me uh, of um, the book and the movie, The River Runs Through It. We talked about this on the very first week. Norman McLean is telling the story of his family. And he, as an old man, he's recalling the story of his family. One of the very last Lines of the book. If you've never read the, read the book, you should. If you haven't seen the movie, you should. It's a great movie. Um, but the last line, uh, last very last part of the book, he talks about all that I've known and loved have gone. And then this is what he says. Eventually, all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood. It runs over rocks from the basement of time. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I'm haunted by waters. Right? And you've got this picture of Norman McLean that has, like the waters, has these memories, these deep memories of all that his life has been. And he's telling this story as an old man, and he's kind of haunted by the memories of it. I think John's like that. Right? All that he has known and loved has changed and gone. And you think about what he has seen from when he was with Jesus, probably in his 30s. 50 years of life with the early church and watching this thing unfurl and spread out. And watching the persecution, no doubt, that happened. And watching all of these people that he loved die for the sake of the gospel. 
And now he's writing this. So we've got to remember that. This is where we started, right? And he's aiming at, remember with me, he's aiming at your, and the, the belief of the reader, of the audience. He's aiming at belief. He uses the word believe or believed 84 times in 21 chapters. 84 times. It's everywhere. If you read through John and start circling the word believe or believed, it shows up in virtually every chapter. Right? He's aiming at your belief. He even says it at the end of chapter 20. Right, um, He talks about, there's more things that are written down, but these are written down so that you might believe, and believing have life in his name. That's what he's aiming at. Right? He's aiming at your belief. Uh, if we, if, as we study, and what we see is uh, John the evangelist, the writer, uses John the Baptist as these sort of bookends and markers, if you will, right? So he shows up in John, in chapter 1, verse 19, we get the first mention of John the Baptist, and at the end of chapter 10, in verse 42, he kind of bookends the, the ministry of Jesus with John the Baptist, right? He refers all the way back to the beginning, right? So he's, this is a whole intentional section of 119 through 1042 where John is talking about and explaining the life and ministry of Jesus. And then it shifts, then he moves a little bit, right? Uh, one of the things that we're going to look at here is part of this pivot. So it, I'm not going to read all these to you, but in uh, he, he, starts, he refers all the way through, the, through the, these first 10 chapters, he refers to, and if you've been paying attention, the, this phrase that the hour has not yet come, right? My hour has not yet come. In chapter 2, the first miracle at the, uh, where Jesus turns water into wine, right? Remember what he says to Mary? Mary turns to him, right? And turns to the servants and says, hey, do whatever he says. He's like, what does it have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, right? And if you go, you go forward into chapter 4, verse 21 and 23, Jesus is talking about, or is talking to the woman at the well. And this is like when we see it this way, it makes this section even more um, stand out. He's talking with the woman at the well and he he refers to the, the hour is coming. Right? She says, you know, he says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. You're right, you have five husbands. Right? And she goes, Oh, I perceive you're a prophet. I perceive you're a prophet. Well, well our fathers say worship on this mountain and you say worship on that mountain. And Jesus says an hour is coming where you won't worship on this mountain or that mountain. But you'll worship in spirit and in truth. Then he goes on a couple of verses later and says an hour is, has now come. The hour is here. Right? She, and and she mentions the Messiah. And he says, yeah, that's me. Right? He reveals to her that the hour has come. But he's, he's looking forward to this. This is what we're talking about. Chapter 7, verse 30. He says, you know, they're, they're trying to arrest him. But he slipped through because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20. His hour had not yet come. Right, so we've got that. That's kind of the backdrop, the context of what we're dealing with. Then we get to chapter 11. This is what we talked about last week. We get to chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. Right, and now the brokenness of humanity comes right in Jesus' lap with one of his closest friends, presumably his closest friend, with Lazarus. Right, and we have this... Uh, I, I referred to it last week as this, this like transcendent nugget, this thing that we can pull up out of this text that, that crosses um, any sort of context and we can apply. But you, you think of it this way in this raising of Lazarus. 
you, you look back and Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. Right? I'm the bread of life. He has said, I'm the source of living water. He said, I'm the light of the world. And now, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? I'm the resurrection and the life. Uh, this, like the source of life. This is, this is me. So I'm referring to this as like this nugget that we can pull up that we can take out of the context of talking to Martha about her dead brother. And we can apply it in Noblesville, Indiana in 2021 and grab hold of it, right? So that's, that's what we see. But we also see that Jesus is deeply moved and he's greatly troubled and he weeps. He weeps with Martha and Mary. He's confr- I think what's going on is he's confronted with the brokenness of humanity and that it, the feeling that we've all experienced, right? At a funeral... Or when you're confronted with death and there's this feeling that wells up that goes, it ought not be like this. It shouldn't be like this. Right? I think that's what's going on. I think Jesus feels all the feels right here, right? That's what he's got going on. Um, so that brings us to chapter 12. We've got to roll. In chapter 12, John covers the only things that he will record about the Passion Week. John does this very different than the other gospel writers, right? This, this like super important week of Jesus' life. John condenses it down to one chapter. And, and man, I have struggled with John chapter 12 this week. I have struggled, right? Of I have read it and read it and read it and studied and studied. And I came into Friday and all I had, as far as like a direction, is like a sheet like this with a bunch of chicken scratch on it. Of going, man, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know. I, don't, I can't figure out where to, how does this all fit together? Right, Because it's like all this week is condensed down into a chapter. So here's what we see. Here's what we see. You kinda, if you want to skip over this just a little bit, then we're going to zoom in to, these, to a few verses. But in verses 1 through 8, we see that Mary anoints Jesus. I've, I've heard of multiple conversations going on in our church around this particular passage. The Reinhardts are over at my house um, <coughs> a few days ago. And we were, we were talking about this exact passage, right, of like, Sometimes sacrificial giving and worship doesn't make sense. That's what we see. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. She breaks the equivalent of $50,000 worth of perfume and she pours it out on Jesus. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it doesn't even make sense to us. Right? And, and there's all sorts of things we could talk about around there. But Jesus, Mary anoints Jesus. And I don't think she fully, I know, she doesn't fully comprehend what she's doing. She doesn't know that Jesus is about to die. Right? But that's, that's all what's happening. And then verses 9 through 11, uh, the Pharisees or the chief priests are making a plan to, to, to kill Lazarus. Right, They're trying to stop this thing. How do we stop this movement of belief in Jesus as Messiah? Well, he just raised this dude from the dead. So kill him. Get him off the scene. Right, Because there's a crowd that's coming to see Lazarus. Because Lazarus had been raised from the dead. So they're, about to, they're, they're planning how they can kill Lazarus. Then we have verses 12 through 15. Right, a pretty familiar passage where Jesus comes into the city. It's this triumphal entry. As he comes in, they're laying palm branches down. They're crying, Hosanna. Right, Hosanna is just, this is a, a transliteration. This is a Hebrew word, Hosanna. Save us, please. Save us, please. That's what they're crying out as Jesus enters into the, into the city. Right, there's this big crowd around. He comes in, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. Right, 
He comes in that way. Great chunk to study. And then verses 16 through 19, John kind of plays narrator, right? He kind of jumps out a little bit and plays narrator. He goes, look, we didn't understand this, <laughs> right? Because he was there, he said, and he says, we didn't understand this until after the resurrection. We didn't understand it until Jesus was glorified, right? And then we look back and we remember what he had said, and then we got it, right? That's where we, sitting where we're sitting, it's kind of like watching the football game from your couch rather than on the front row, Right? On the front row, you don't see all the football game. On your couch, you see all the angles. You see all the things. Right? And that's kind of the angle that we've got. We can see this clearly. And John says we were too close. We didn't see it. We didn't see it. So, so here's what I want to do just for a few minutes. I want us to zoom in to verses 20 through 36. And really what we're looking at this morning is we're looking at this pivot. We're looking at the pivot and, and what changes here. Now look, here's my... Let me, Push pause for a second. Let's breathe for a minute. Push pause. And here's, here's my encouragement to you uh, over the next several weeks. There is so much in the remainder of John, right? In, in John 12 through 20. We're going to be in John 20 on Easter. That's 11 weeks from now, right? Well, between now and then, there is so much in the book of John. And, and here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to, to, to read and think and wrestle and discuss this text in your family, in your small groups, in, the, in a, whatever huddles you might be in, like I want to, on your, in your own personal time, and maybe you might journal about it. Because here's the deal. Like I sat down, Brad and I and Ross sat down, and we had 20 sermons lit, listed out with the text and the title, right, of 20, like these are no-brainer sermons, and we have 10 weeks, right? So there's 10 sermons worth of material that we're just having, that I or whoever's preaching is just having to move on past, and that's always the case, right? I mean, we could take three years to go through John and still miss it, still miss some of it. So what I'm saying is, like, if, if my 30 or 40 minutes of teaching and preaching on John, if that's all you're getting in John, you're missing quite a bit. So I want to encourage you and help you connect. If you're not connected to a small group, come find me. If you're not connected to a huddle, come find me or find one of the pastors. We'll help you get connected because this is such a rich portion of Scripture. Such a rich portion of Scripture that it will change the way that you operate. And it has for me. It has for me. This is such an important passage of Scripture. John 13 through 20 is such an important passage of scripture in my own personal faith um, that I want to push you I want to push you that way man, to lean in uh, and to study so here we go uh, we're going we're gonna to dive in for a minute in verses uh, 20 through 36 and in this we'll see the pivot in this there's three statements that I'd like to look at and unpack here uh, that will lead us to worship so if you've got your Bible, finally, after that whole long setup, we're getting here to read. Uh, starting in verse 20 of chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. This is probably, we don't know where they came from, but this is not just uh, Jews of the dispersion. These are probably uh, Greek-speaking uh, believers, God-fearers, maybe proselytes that have 
converted to Judaism, but they are not Jewish, is what it looks like if you, you look at all this. So they, they come to the feast, they went up to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So they're looking for Jesus. They've heard about him, certainly. We want to see Jesus. Um, and Philip went and told Andrew. Philip didn't know what to do, right? So he goes and gets Andrew. Andrew and Philip uh, went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This serves as some sort of signal to Jesus, right? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Sheesh. Right? That's an answer to like they're looking for Jesus and Jesus gives them this, Jesus gives this answer. Now we don't know if he, if he met with them or not. We don't know if this is the only answer they got. Right? It's just not recorded for us. But what the significant part here is recorded for us and is what Jesus says. Right? So the first statement that we're really looking at is the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. It's here. Right? We just look back like at all these places where it has said the hour has not yet come. But now <coughs> the hour has come. And what it seems like is that the Greeks showing up and looking for Jesus, this is the signal, right? This is the thing that, that signifies now the hour has come. That's the way it seems to, it seems to play out, right? And the Greeks, some commentators would say that the Greeks showing up here represent the world, right? It's not the Jews, it's other people. It's the other people. It's the Gentiles, right? But look at what's happening. Some Greeks showed up, and they came to Philip, and they said, we wish to see Jesus. You think about this. What's happening with the Jews right now? What are the Jews doing with Jesus? Chief priests, what are they trying to do with Jesus? They're, what's up, Jason? The, the Jews are plotting to kill Jesus. The Jews are plotting to kill Jesus. Right? They're making plans. They're trying to arrest him and get rid of him. Simultaneously, the Greeks show up and go, we just want to see him. Can we have a meeting with him? Can we get together with him? Right? We want to be with him. Right? So you've got this, this shift that's going on. The hour has come. And what's going to happen here with the death of Jesus, it's going to bust the gates wide open. Right? It's going to tear down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Right, It's going to make them all one. Now there is no Jew and Gentile. It's only in Christ or not in Christ. That's what's coming. The hour has come. That's what's happening. But you look what else Jesus does. He immediately starts talking about death. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How will we do that? Truly I say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit, right? The way that Jesus is going to be glorified, he is going to die. He will be lifted up. We'll read that in a minute. He'll be lifted up. He'll be crucified, and he will die. And part of his death, in his death, he is glorified. In his death, he defeats sin. In his death, he makes atonement. 
In His death, He displays that He is the God of the universe. His resurrection solidifies it all. Right? That's what's happening here when He begins talking about that. Whoever hates His life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So it's not, it's not this like hate, it's this it's not hate the way we think of hate in a negative sense, and it's, it's, it's compared with loving it, right? It's this one or the other, and that you make yourself low. You count your life of little value compared to serving Jesus. So he says, look in 26, if anyone serves me, it's not just, it's not enough, like it's not, the deal is not just you have to die, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying if anyone serves me, he must follow me. He follows me, and when you do that, where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, it's the one that serves me that the Father will honor, right? That's what he's getting at. He's not saying you just have to die, right? It's that you follow me. You follow me, and the Father will honor you. But you look at, you look at this, and like we, we contrast this to the previous reference to this hour. We've done that. But you look at, there's, there's one more thing here that is significant, Right in our thinking about the the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This phrase, the hour has come. It makes me think of the fullness of time. The fullness of time. Right? Does that ring a bell? Should if like if you're reading if you're reading other places in Galatians or other places in the New Testament, Galatians is one of them. You'll run across this phrase, and it was not a phrase we use often. So like when you read it, it's particularly in a familiar passage, it will kind of stick in your memory. The fullness of time. Ephesians. Let me just read these to you. There's two passages I want to read to you about the fullness of time and thinking that the hour, the hour has come. Ephesians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but I think I've got it up here actually. Kayla, go to the next slide and see if it's up there. Look there. I did get it up. Ephesians 1 and then Galatians 4. Look, Read this with me. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Talking about God's plan for redemption and restoration of all things happens in the, in the fullness of time. His son comes and now, this is what Jesus is saying, the hour has come. This is what it carries. The hour has come. Now is the time for that. And really what's happening is Paul is looking back and saying this is what happened. Right? It's not Jesus looking back to Ephesians. It's Paul looking back to what Jesus did. We see that again. Paul writes another letter to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, it says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, when the time had come, when the hour had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, no, you're, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir. Amen. Right? So we've got all of this. This is what carries when Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
This is what's happening. The hour has come. So the narrative now, from this point, shifts towards the final hours of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. John chapter 13 through the end of John chapter 19 encompass about 12 to 14, 15 hours. Right? So we're going to spend nine weeks looking at 15 hours of time that John, as an old man, recalls for us in this distinct memory of probably the most impactful night, night of his life. That's where we're going. So, here's, so that's, that's your pivot. Here's the pivot. The hour has come. Here's our big shift, right? So there's two other things I want us to look at. Look with me. I didn't put it on the screen. I'm sorry. Um, <coughs> but look with me in your Bible, verse 27 through 32. Starting in verse 27. Now, now is my soul troubled. Jesus is troubled. He knows what's coming. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I'm supposed to say? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Look what he says. Father, glorify your name. This is Jesus' prayer in the midst of trouble. Right? He knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. And he is also human. Right? It is anxiety-inducing. It's scary. It's hard. He knows that suffering is coming. He knows that pain is coming. He knows that crucifixion is coming. Right? He knows that bearing the sin of his people is coming. Keep reading. Then a voice came from heaven. said, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said, said that it had thundered. They didn't understand it. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice came for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Alright, so here's what we want to look at quickly. Jesus' soul was troubled. It shows us, just like Jesus weeping, his Trouble shows us, displays his humanity. His humanity. He was fully man and fully God. But one does not cancel out or negate the other. He was both. That's what we see displayed when Jesus feels brokenness or feels the weight of the brokenness of humanity and he weeps over the death of Lazarus. It's a display of his humanity. Same way, we see all we see tons of emotions and tons of things that Jesus does. He got hungry, he was thirsty, he had friends, he, had, he got angry, right? All these things are a display of his humanity, the same way this is. He was worried. My soul is troubled. This is, this is his humanity. And then we see his prayer. I mentioned that was his prayer in the midst of trouble. Father, glorify your name. And what a prayer. This is one of those things you ought to take that and hold on to it, right? And in, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of trouble, this is a great place. In the midst of trouble or suffering or hardship, you don't know what to do, this is a great prayer to, to echo. Father, glorify your name. Use me for your glory. Whether that is for 
for great victory or for terrible suffering. If that's what you see fit, use me to glorify your name. It's a great, a great thing to grab hold of here. And the Father answers him. It's recorded for us. And the people heard it. And this is, this is just another validation for them of his uh, messianic identity. Right? They hear the Father respond. And Jesus says, that was, that's for you. That's for you. Right? Jesus knew. He knew that the Father heard his prayer. But now everybody hears this, right? <laughs> and they don't know what to do with it, but that's what's going on. Okay, let's keep, keep reading just a little bit. Verses 33 down through 36. We'll see one more statement. He said this to show, he's talking about being lifted up, and he'll draw all people to himself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We've heard, of the, we've heard from the law that the, the Christ... The Messiah, the anointed one, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Right? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Right? So the answer to their question is coming. It's coming. But here's what we see. The crowd's paying attention. Right? The crowd is paying attention and they're making connections. Right? They're making the connections. They know what Jesus, they're picking up on what Jesus is saying. Right, and and it's throwing them off. Right, and they're going, "Hold on, hold on. <laughs> what kind of son of man is going to be lifted up? Because this is not what we're thinking. Right, this is not what they had in mind for this like messianic expectation. This is not what they're expecting out of a Messiah. We thought, what it says, we've heard from the law that Christ remains forever." So what's going on? Now people will ask this. People that reject the, re the resurrection of Jesus will still to this day be answering that question or asking that question. Right? What kind of, what kind of God, what kind of son of man dies on a cross? Right? Like a common criminal. What kind of man does that? Nobody. A nobody. Nobody significant. Nobody important. Right? Here's the, here's the deal. Here's what we see. Ultimately, the resurrection of Jesus will fully display that the Son of Man will indeed remain forever. Right? And so the answer for them at, in that moment, there's no way to answer them in a, in a way that is sufficient. They will see it in just a few days. Right? That the Son of Man will indeed remain forever. And that He is indeed the Son of God. And He is indeed authority over death and hell, and that he is God alone. The resurrection puts all of that on display for them, right? So that's what's coming. And then you may, you've got this last, this last statement I want us to look at. The very last verse. While you have the light, look what he says. Believe. John, Jesus hits this and John highlights it. 
Believe in the light. What happens when you believe in the light? Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Right? That belief, we've talked about this over and over again, that belief is the key here that unlocks relationship with God as a son or daughter. Glorious reality. <clears throat> now look, we're going to stop there, but here's what you see. Right? If you keep going, you keep going through chapter 12, you see all of this unbelief of the people. And you see that their unbelief, their unbelief fulfills Scripture. And the fulfillment of Scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah, like their unbelief fulfills the prophecy, thereby more affirmation that this is indeed the Messiah. Right? Even their unbelief affirms that he's the Messiah. Right? We see that. We see that going through there, and you've got this last little wrap-up in chapter 12. But here's the takeaway. Here's what I want us to take away uh, from this look through chapter 12 a little bit as we have done. Number one, it is my great desire and aim that you understand the gospel of John more fully. Right? I want you to understand it. I want you to come away from the book of John. I want you to come away from our 28 weeks walking through the book of John and that you understand it more than you did before. Or at least you're reminded of it. You might know more. Certainly, you, there's some people in this room, no doubt, that know more about John than I do, right? But what I'm saying is, like, I just want us to spend, spend a chunk of time and you come away from it understanding it more fully. And to understand John, you have to understand chapter 12. Right? You've got to understand this pivot from the ministry to the last bit and now the hour has come. Right? So that's part of the aim this morning, is just to understand uh, the Gospel of John more fully. Another takeaway here, and this has been my prayer for you and for myself and for my family this week, is that God would increase our appetite for the Word. That the more we understand it, the more we see it come to life, the more the Holy Spirit of God uses His Word to speak truth and conviction and encouragement and, and all the things that he does into our lives, the, what happens there is our appetite grows. Right? Our appetite grows. And the more you exercise those muscles, the more your appetite grows. Just like, just like exercising anything else. Right? The more your appetite, the more calories you need, the more appetite you have. And that's been my prayer, that God give us a strong affection and appetite for your word. And my hope is, my hope is that what happens in our church is that our love for the Word is contagious. Our love for the Word is contagious. We've talked about this. I think Will Honey, Will is watching online right now. If, if uh, Will and I were talking about this, like you watch somebody love something. You watch somebody love something and it's contagious, right? Uh, Will loves Lord of the Rings. My man reads the trilogy every year, and he loves it. Every time we get together to talk about the gospel, Will connects it to Lord of the Rings. My man loves Lord of the Rings. Well, you know what I did from being around Will a little bit? I bought the books. Like, I bought the Lord of the Rings books. And I, I've like read through some of the books because, because one, it's a great story, but, but primarily because Will loves it, and it's contagious. My hope is that in our church, not, not just for me, I love the Word. I hope you see that. But what happens more than you watching me love the Word is that we watch each other love the Word, right? And then we have a gospel centered, Bible-saturated community that we watch each other love the Word. We watch each other read and consume the Word. We watch each other adjust our lives according to the Word. We watch each other love it and go, man, I love this more. 
That's the hope. That's the hope of this whole thing, right, is that God increase our appetite for the word. Third thing, third takeaway. This is what John is aiming at. Believe. He is aiming at your belief. And, and this is one of the things that we see in chapter 12. Believe that you may be sons of light. You don't start there. You don't start there. You believe so that you may be sons of light. Right? Belief in the right object connects you to God in a unique relationship. <clears throat> but here's what we see in chapter 12. Proximity, and this, is, this applies to you. It applies to me. It applies in Hamilton County in 2021. Proximity and familiarity with Jesus is no equivalent of belief. And that is scary. Proximity and familiarity is no equivalent to belief. If you read the rest of chapter 12, it talks about their unbelief, the unbelief of the people. You think about this. People that saw Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, come into the city on this year, right? For Passover. He comes riding in on a donkey. And don't you know there's somebody there that, <coughs> that gets wrapped up in the emotion of the whole thing, carries a palm branch, lays it down, cries out, Hosanna, save us, please. They're wrapped up in the emotion of They see him with their own eyes. But they don't believe. They don't believe. And the belief is not there. Therefore, they're not sons of light. Therefore, they spend eternity separated from God. Because they saw him. They might have touched him. They listened to him teaching, but belief was not there. And if belief is not there, you will spend eternity in hell. That is the unfortunate reality. But that's what we see. Proximity and familiarity with Jesus is of little value without belief. The way that translates to you and to me is that you can come to a building and sit in a service. You can take communion and give your money. You can be a pastor. You can rant and rave and preach all you want to. But if you don't believe if your genuine belief in the Son of God is not there, then you are not a son of light. That ought to get our attention. Right? And so part of what we do when we come to a text like this is we go, God, God, help me. Help me to assess this. Because here's the deal. Belief, genuine belief will ripple across your entire life. Genuine belief will ripple across your entire life. It will affect your relationships. It will affect your marriage and your parenting. It will affect the way that you spend money. It will affect the way that you talk and walk. It will affect the way that you interact with other people. It will affect the way you do everything. If it, and, and, and if it's not there, it's just not there. So part of the takeaway here, part of the takeaway is to say, okay, Let's take a moment to really assess our own personal beliefs. I can't assess your beliefs for you. That's not my job. 
Now, I'll help you. If you want some help, I'll help you. You need to know that I'm a, we're going to hammer this more than, I, than we have in the past. Right? You need to know your pastors of your church are accessible to you. We love you. And I want to walk through, not just I, we, there's a plurality of pastors here. We want to walk through life with you. So if you are struggling, if there's a hard, hard season, you're struggling with going, dude, I don't know, man. You're talking about assessing your beliefs, and I don't know how to do that. And call me, or Brad, or Justin, or Rob, or Dan. Call one of us. We'd love to walk through the realities of life with you graciously and easily, right? Nobody's coming down on you. We don't walk with you through that to assess this because there is nothing more important in all of your life than making sure that your belief is genuine that your your proximity to Jesus is not as far as it goes but that belief is genuine so that's one response assess your belief a second response is that we remember the death of Christ that set us free freedom an unfathomable freedom that comes from the death of Jesus. And the most practical way that we do that as a church is we take the Lord's Supper together. Right? In just a few weeks, we'll see Jesus institutes this with his disciples. He lays this out. And 2,000 years later, we're still doing it. Right? That we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed to make atonement for our sins. So one of the great realities of being part of the local church is that we get to do this together, right? And so here in just a minute, and as we take a moment to respond, you've got a chance, a chance to, to take into your own body the wine and the bread, or the juice and the bread, whatever you want. <coughs> and in doing so, God, rem he reminds us. It's like this very, the most physical of reminders. Right In that you consume it. You, you literally consume it as a reminder. That's good stuff. right? And that in doing so, we declare his death until he comes. So that's the way that we respond. A third way that we respond is that we rejoice. This reality changes our posture. It changes the way we walk. Belief, like I said, belief ripples across all of your life. It changes the way that we respond. And that we rejoice changes our posture, right? And so it changes the way, that we, the way that we give. It changes the way that we pull our resources for the sake of having a healthy, Christ-centered, Bible-saturated church in Noblesville. And the place where we live and love and do all these things, right? We want to have a healthy church here. So we give to participate as part of that. They were part of this thing with a posture of joy, not a posture of duty. A posture of joy. Right? We love each other. We step into each other's lives. Not, as a, not with a posture of like, well, sure, if you're sick, I'll bring you a meal, I guess. But with a posture of joy. It says, man, you are my brother and my sister. I love you. Right? And y'all do that well. Goodness, y'all kill that. But, but here's the motivation, right? That we, that we share. We share. We love our neighbors. We share this truth with our neighbors, not out of this like obligation or this trying to earn the favor of an angry God, right? But with a posture of joy of going, dude, this changed my life. I want you to know about it, right? And that we enjoy God, that we walk in joy with this posture, not out of all these things that we have to do, 
but with, with joy for what God has already done. It changes the game. So look, I want to I pray for us. We're going to respond, assess your belief, remember his death, uh, rejoice in all that we do. We're going to sing a little bit. We're gonna, we've got an opportunity to take communion together. There's an opportunity for you to give. We're going to fellowship a little bit after this service is over. We're going to go out. All of it is worship. All of it is worship. So let me pray for us, and we'll do just that. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your word, for the way that you teach us and reveal yourself to us through it. I'm grateful that it's laid out (coughs) in such a way that we can study it. And that we can understand things like this pivot that happens in chapter 12 where we recognize that the hour has come. God, I'm taken back by the reality and the offer that we can believe in the light and become sons of the light. Father, may we all be enamored with Jesus and with such a gracious offer. Lord, so help us as we respond to respond well and sensitively. God, to assess our belief to assess our belief, proximity and familiarity with Jesus is not sufficient for salvation. Lord, so help us to be wise about that. Lord, help us as we remember to not just go through the motions, <coughs> but to be engaged. Lord, then as we, as we go, As we give, as we sing, as we love and share and serve, all the things we do, may our posture be one of joy. Lord, we thank you for Jesus.